0: Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and it's great to have you back with us, or perhaps you're joining us for the first time. Thanks for joining us. We hope you continue to do so. I'm also glad today to have with me Tim Cockrell. Tim is back for a second straight time, and he recently shared a sermon from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16, with our Grace Baptist Church family, and we look forward to discussing that message in the coming minutes. So, Tim, last week we came to the end of what we have come to know as Jesus' five major discourses, starting there in chapter 5 and on through chapter 25, and now we're going to see Jesus on a very carefully orchestrated, I'll call it a collision course, really, with the cross, and before we go any further, though... I know that you joined us in chapter 18 about five months into the series, so you were about five months late. But what about our study in Matthew so far has really been the most impactful to you?
1: I think always when I've thought of the book of Matthew and its uniqueness in the Gospels, I always think of it as presenting Jesus as the king, you know, as the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, you know, even the way that it begins with the genealogy. And that's very true. But one of the things that I have been most impacted by, I think, is recognizing the way that those five discourses really emphasize on what it means to be citizens of the kingdom, under the king. And I think maybe it was uh, Chris Miller or one of the others who had been preaching that just really helped us to see how each of those five discourses are part of the discipleship training initiative that Jesus is doing, helping them to understand the importance of integrity of heart, the the reality of persecution, the even the the delay in the second coming of Christ and the way that they're to live in the interim time. And I think that's helpful and connected to that in this fifth discourse, so much of it has been a warning against the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership. And obviously as a Christian leader, that gives me cause for pause, to stop and say, these were men who seem to have all the education, the experience, the authority But when it came down to it, it wasn't just that they were misguided, it's that they were lost. And so that really has been convicting as well as encouraging because it drives us back to the grace of the gospel.
0: There's something in here for everybody, and whether you're the lowly one, the woman who is giving of herself, we're going to be talking about Mm -hmm. that today, or the person who is, one could say, even at the pinnacle uh, of Um. church leadership and... um, Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. I appreciate your, your uh, sharing that, Tim. Uh, Yeah. From the top here, I think a restatement of what you called your big idea statement. It's important as we move on into the discussion of Jesus's anointing here in this passage, you said, and I'm quoting here, God has wired us in such a way that when we see something valuable, we're willing to give up everything in order to gain it. With that in the background, it seems to me that true worship often then can come across as against reason. We've left everything for something. People aren't always going to understand that.
1: Your thoughts? Yes, absolutely. You know, when we really love something and it brings us joy, our hearts are filled with gratitude in ways way that, that we give ourselves almost sacrificially, unreasonably, because of the proportion to which We love that thing. So every one of us will give up what is extremely important to us in order to pursue something that is supremely important. You know, so we all have some sports fans that we would know if their sports team was in the Super Bowl, they would be the ones paying $5,000 a ticket because they'd want to be sitting there watching their team in that moment. And what team was that this year, Tim? That was the Cincinnati Bengals. Very
0: good, very good, and I imagine living up in northern Ohio, that may be hard to say.
1: You know, <laughs> it's been a long time since the Cleveland Browns have been anywhere close to that. So I'm, I'm just excited for another Ohio team.
0: We digress, but go ahead,
1: absolutely. But, you know, in the sermon, I I shared a little bit about my story with Katie when she and I were dating in college, and she had always wanted to see Les Mis on Broadway. And so during Christmas break, I bought tickets to, as a poor college student, bought (laughs) tickets to see Les Mis on Broadway and drove from Ohio to Maine, Maine to New York, New York back to Maine, and then Maine back to Ohio. But the reason for that was I wanted to express to Katie that she was my deepest love, my highest priority. And at that point... I was convinced she was the one that I was supposed to marry. She wasn't exactly convinced yet. And so I really wanted to, to demonstrate to her how much she meant to me. And so I think that's the, the principle here. And it's really related back even to the principle Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we, we make sacrifices that go above and beyond for that thing that we think is supremely valuable
0: well your first major point following that statement on sunday it focused on Jesus' control of the events leading to this point of the narrative why is that control over circumstances why is it such an important truth to his followers today what does that tell us
1: well i think one of the things that we as believers have always wrestled with is the question if god is good and god is powerful then why does he allow sinful people to cause so much pain and devastation in the world? Because it can feel like evil is winning and that circumstances are kind of spiraling out of control. But in our text and in other passages that we're going to see in, in the coming weeks, we're going to see God allowing sinful people to make sinful and rebellious choices. But that God's sovereignty is in, on display, that he even bends the rebellious actions of his enemies To accomplish his good plan and his good purpose. So that if somebody else were looking from the outside, they'd say, that's not good. But in God's plan, it is good. And I think that's especially important for us as we look at circumstances that are going on in Ukraine or even the the hardships of, of COVID over the last several years. There was nothing that felt good about COVID. There's nothing that feels good as we watch these heartbreaking news stories. But we rest on the pillow of God's sovereignty every night. That God is good and that he's powerful even enough to take situations and circumstances that are not good from a moral perspective to accomplish a greater good. And, and that, that's what we have to rest in because we can't control those events, but he can. I love the lyrics
0: of Casting Crown's song, <clears throat> the, the world's not falling apart, mm-hmm. it's falling into place. It reminds me that when everything outside of me... Is going awry, not going according to my plan. Uh, God's still in control. Absolutely. And and we're, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask you something here coming up. But you've been through this even in the past five years.
1: Yes, it's true. And, and many times that's the test of faith. I mean, anybody can trust and follow God when things are going well and there's money in your bank account and you're healthy and happy. But it's when things are hard or unpredictable or circumstances happen that you don't understand and that that God sometimes doesn't ever give you the insight as to why he allowed it, but that it's in those valleys that, one, we learn to trust, and two, we know the nearness of his presence in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. So if you're thinking
0: about turning off the podcast right now, stay tuned. We're <laughs> going to get to another comment uh, here down the road. I want to get Tim's ideas on something that uh, he's, he's teasing a little bit here. So one of my takeaways, Tim, from this passage is that I need to be careful about assuming I need know the motivations behind the why and how and and the when of others worship. And frankly, I don't need to be even worrying about why they're <laughs> worshiping. I guess I could say, but my critical spirit, and I've got it, I I can often judge others. I can hypothesize about, you know, the motivations behind what they're doing, what they're saying and so far and this Unfortunately, this often influences how I worship, hmm. whether it 's privately or corporately i can't imagine i'm the only one out there that has this issue. Help me, help me, help me, come on, Tim, help me, give me some ideas on how to deal with this
1: well, I think it 's a really important point, especially because we've just been warned in the preceding chapters that what we see on the outside doesn't always match the heart that 's going on in the inside, and so we can all be prone to assume that. We not only have the right answers, but we have the right way of worshiping and doing things. And so we can have a very narrow box and then we then project that on other people. And if they don't fit what makes sense to us, then we do. We can have that critical spirit and say, well, they don't know as much as I do or they're not approaching things in the right way. They're too serious or too lively or too emotional or too logical. Whatever kind of our box is, whatever's outside of it, we're prone to judge But I think one of the things that's important is we look at the disciples and the disciples as this woman is pouring out this perfume, they're scolding her and shaking their heads in disapproval. And I have to be honest, if I was there, I probably would be right there with them thinking, man, $25,000 worth of perfume poured out in this one moment, what a waste. But then I think about how many times in scripture are these acts of worship that happen unreasonable in the way that they do them. So the little boy that gives his five loaves and two fish to Jesus to feed 5,000 people, you know, that's unreasonable. You think about the Roman centurion who, who approaches Jesus with an act of worship by saying, I believe that you can heal my servant even though, you know, nobody else does. I'm a man who's under authority and I know what that looks like. Thinking about the woman who reached out and touched Jesus' robe that she How might dare be. She? Yeah, be healed from, from the issue of blood. Um, you know, there's just so many situations. Even Mary, when Martha is busy working, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And in each of those times, an act of worship that looked very different were criticized or looked down on by those around them, but those are the people Jesus actually commends. And I think that should give us pause to say there were many times in Jesus's ministry that the people who were expressing their worship in a variety of ways were commended for it at the very time that other people were looking down on them. And so then when it comes to us as we, we worship, I think we recognize that there's a variety of expressions of worship that can honor God. And I think there's even a place to caution us because Jesus throughout the book of Matthew has pointed to some of the the normal customary things that they had been prone to look to as, now there's a model of worship or there's how worship's really done. He says, you see the Pharisees praying on the street corner, don't pray like them. You see the people who are putting all this money in the temple treasury, but this widow who put these two copper coins gave more than all of them. It's a warning that even some of the things that feel right to us, if they're not done from a right heart, can be can be wrong. And this is one of the reasons why I really encourage people to get involved in missions, one of many reasons. But when we go overseas, you know, you go into a different cultural context, suddenly you realize their worship doesn't sound like ours does. doesn't look like ours do. But as we see the variety of expressions of worship, we recognize that within certain boundaries, God is honored by all of them. And so whether you're in an African church where they're they're shouting and dancing, or whether you're in a very somber, serious, uh, predictable, liturgical type of service, God can be honored by all of those. And so that gives me a pause as I have that same danger of a critical spirit to say, you know, God, you're honored by the heart, and that heart can be expressed in a variety of forms. You know, as I'm I'm listening to that,
0: you recount the different examples of worship. The the woman with the issue of blood, the the uh, elderly woman with the two mites mm-hmm. or the two uh, coins that she puts into the treasury, and these are ones as Mary is here in this story. Uh, uh, they're lauded for their their extreme worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I got I assume that these are somewhat planned. I mean, the woman uh, with the issue of blood, she was waiting for Jesus. And probably tried to position herself so she could be near him. wonder how many of these are just extemporaneous. I can't do anything else but just give everything. I wonder mm. if they were extemporaneous. There's, there's an extemporaneous part of that that has to be there. Something just, I've got to do this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we see a number of examples of that. And and honestly, the the woman with the issue of blood may very well have been that. I have to to press in and touch Jesus. We even saw that in an example, I forget which chapter here leading up to as Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem, he's coming through Jericho and there's the two blind men and they hear, "Hey, Jesus is passing by." And they immediately stop and just start crying out, "Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us." You know, this this messianic declaration, if you will. Because they're saying, you're our only hope. And what they lacked in eyesight, they made up for an insight because they recognized who Jesus was, even though the religious leaders who should have known better didn't. So what I hear you saying is uh, uh,
0: focusing on Jesus, making sure that I'm focusing on him instead of other people, but also Mm. being willing to give Something that not only is going to cost me, it may cost me some reputation as well. Mm-hmm. And so, may it cost me some weird looks. I get those anyway. Yeah. but Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, while we're on this subject of worship, Tim, I feel compelled once again. I've brought this up. I forget if it's been with you or, or other guests here, but I want to appeal to Romans chapter 12, verse mm. 1. You almost have to go there. Mm-hmm. You have to keep going there. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It seems to me that this is the spirit of what the woman's doing as she anoints Jesus. She's giving of everything, including her body, her hair, Mm -hmm. her glory. Uh, She's putting herself out there.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think the phrase in Romans 12 that's so foundational that we might be prone to read right past is I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God or because of the mercies of God. You see so many times in in the cultures back then people would come to offer sacrifices they would kill an animal to obtain the mercy of God. Mm. So offering sacrifices was the means by which you then could get what you wanted from God. Whereas the argument Paul is making here is that the imperative flows from the indicative that, that because we have been loved and shown mercy by God, then our response is to humbly and unreservedly live in service of God. And the word sacrifice really reminds us that it's not just some small contribution, but it's complete devotion. So as we think about that, the, religious, the Christian life isn't just religious devotion or spiritual emotion. But it's rather a total transformation of our lives. So we talk about the body, it goes to every facet of us, not just our mind or or even our our religious worship on a Sunday morning. So it's a choice that we're making to surrender every area of our our lives to his lordship, any ingrained patterns or any idols that we're clinging to. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday. So, you know, we just think about our bodies, our eyes and our ears, You know, we yield those to Christ and and that we are guarding carefully what we're listening to and and looking at. Our tongue is yielded to Christ as we refuse to gossip or slander, lie or grumble. Our hands and our feet are yielded to God as we refuse to pursue sinful behaviors and instead serve others and go to proclaim the gospel to the nations. the very word sacrifice tells us that it's going to be costly. It's Mm -hmm. difficult. It's not something that's going to come naturally to us. And this isn't just some minor improvement God wants to make. It's a total radical transformation that results from our faith in him. And so in order to do that, we have to continually repent of our sin, acknowledge our need for grace and growth, and live in a spirit dependent and and obedient on Christ. So it's a response to what God has done. And because of that, we willingly give him everything that we have and all that we are because we love him.
0: And to that point, my understanding, I think we may have talked about this a number of weeks ago, but my understanding there in that last part of that verse, it's your spiritual service of worship, your spiritual worship. uh, The idea there is a word from which we get our word logical. Mm -hmm. Is it not? Yes. It's our only logical thing we can do is give everything we got, even our body.
1: Yes, exactly. That if we're rightly understanding things, the only reasonable thing to do is to live with wholehearted devotion to God because he is the only source of true joy. He's the only place where we can find eternal life and, and the satisfaction that our hearts are longing for. Great, great. Okay. It's vent time, okay? I'm right. to
0: vent a little bit. I've got a continuing frustration, and I, I have to deal with this, uh, uh because it's something that I I let get to me, but it seems to me that that too often we can relegate worship to just what we do on Sunday and in what we call corporate worship and maybe even specifically just our singing. You know, well, we're going to worship now. Mm -hmm. That's a singing. Uh, Even, you know, we have a university up the street and they have a worship major. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me to be focused just on music. Mm -hmm. And I wonder... Are we maybe in the church getting a little off base when we say this is what worship is and we don't correct that, what I consider to be maybe a false understanding of what worship really is?
1: I think there's that danger. And I think there's always a danger for us to separate what is spiritual from what is unspiritual, you know, what is sacred from what is secular. That when we're in church on Sunday morning, now that's worship, but then we get to work on Monday morning. That's work. Know, that's work, Exactly but we've already seen a glimpse of this here in Romans chapter 12, that our daily presentation of our lives, our, our entire being, is our expression of worship to God. I'm also reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. You know, So whether you eat or drink or in whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And so easy to compartmentalize worship, You know that we just think of worship as songs that we sing or even studies that we do. But worship is ultimately about A heart of love, a heart of devotion. And so, if I'm loving God completely, then my worship for Him flows through then how I orient my life to Him as my most valuable possession. So, it changes the way I spend my money, it changes the way that I relate to my wife, it changes the way that I approach parenting and sexuality and integrity and and work and all those types of things. And so, if we're living to please God, out of a heart of deep love for Him, then our gathering on Sunday morning really ought to just be the culmination of our worship all throughout the week. And I suspect that when we get to heaven, and you know God gives us a glimpse of what acts of worship were most honoring to Him, many of them will not involve a Sunday morning service. Mm. But it will be the cup of cold water that's given in Jesus' name. It'll be the, the visiting someone in prison or clothing those who didn't have the clothing that they needed, the expressions of love in our everyday relationships and opportunities that most honor Christ. And
0: we often say that to understand a... A premise, it's often good to go back to the very beginning of Mm. when this is introduced. I'm wondering if we wouldn't do well to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and say, okay, what did worship look like as God was originally creating mankind? Can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think God puts them in the garden... And, and he creates male and female. So they're different. You know, even we're just talking about how we can be prone to judge each other in our differences when in reality those differences are a part of the unity God's given us. But then he gives them a responsibility to be fruitful and multiply as well as to rule the earth as his representatives. And so I think that's a good reminder that ruling the earth would have involved a lot of mundane tasks. Work. Exactly. <laughs> but that in working they were also honoring God. And so I would just encourage those who are listening, some of the most mundane tasks that you can do can be done in a heart of worship that's incredibly honoring to God, whether you're changing a dirty diaper or shoveling snow or you know doing your regular routine at work, that when we're doing it with a heart that longs to please God, that is deeply dependent on God, and is seeking to model his character in the way that we live in interaction with others, that brings us back to Genesis 1 and really the purpose that God places on the earth.
0: Well, I'm glad that you didn't specifically mention the project that I have to get to back at the office when <laughs> i when we get done here, because that's something I'm not looking forward to. And I know God doesn't really expect me to worship through that project. Okay. Well, it gets personal here, doesn't it? Well, we've mentioned, Tim, uh, Romans chapter 12, 1. You mentioned Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, when mm. David said, hey, I'm going to buy this threshing floor. I'm not going to worship something that does not cost me anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you, for one who wants to dig deeper a little bit here in the idea of worship, it's a rich study, it mm-hmm. sure is, but can you guide them to some other passages that uh, just res- resound with a lot of a lot of depth and a lot of uh, uh, substance of what we can consider for related to worship?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, there's so many that we could list a whole lot of them. Let me list four of them that, you know, two kind of are going to remind us of the model of worship and two are kind of warnings against, you know, worthless worship, if you will. You know, the first we just covered in Matthew 22, verse 37, when, when the, the person asks him the greatest commandment and Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself reminds us that worship is not about what we do, but what we love. And if we don't get that right, we're going to have a completely misguided understanding of worship because it becomes just a series of routines or rituals that we do rather than having a heart that's consumed with wonder at God's love and a longing to live to please him. You know, the second one would be, go to Exodus chapter 20 verses three through five. The very first commandment that God gives is that you will have no other God's before me, and he talks about being a jealous God, and I think we have to understand there that it's not because God is somehow, you know, a petty jealous deity that just can't stand any competition, but that He knows that our worship of Him is for our good as much as it is for His glory, that He is the only source of satisfaction that that is ultimately going to satisfy. But then a couple of warnings in Galatians chapter four, verses eight through nine. If you're familiar with the book of Galatians. Paul's warning them that they're, they're drifting in a way that's dangerous. And so he reminds them that they were enslaved to idols, that they had come now to worship God. But he says, you have to be careful because you your heart is prone to turn back to those weak and worthless idols that are powerless to save you. Which is exactly what happened to Israel, by the way. And happens to every one of us. That even if we trust in Christ, our hearts are prone to, to draw back to what is familiar, what feels like it has potential to save us, but it's ultimately worthless. And then the last one I would say is just Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. The book of Malachi is such an important warning where God's pointing to their worthless worship. And they're like, what? What are we doing wrong? You know, we're going through all the right motions. But God's pointing out that they are careless in what they're offering. They're, they're foolish in offering God really their leftovers, what's second best. And he says, ultimately, it's because they've lost sight of who God is. That if they really understood his majesty and his holiness, they'd respond in wonder and worship rather than kind of just polite deference or or second uh, leftovers that they're offering to him. Tim, I
0: just finished
1: uh, the uh, Courtney Anderson's
0: biography of Adoniram Judson, Mm. one of the first early missionaries Mm -hmm. sent from the Americas over to Europe, and in this case, Asia. But uh, he went through so many losses. He lost three wives, or two wives, I'm sorry. Uh, His third wife passed shortly after he died, about four years after he passed. He lost numerous children uh, in the jungles in the uh, Burma at the Mm -hmm. time, Myanmar. And through all of that, he developed in his understanding of who God is. He left everything at an early age of uh, early 20s, left everything that was familiar Mm. to him. But it wasn't until he had lost uh, a first wife and then a second wife, he really went through a crisis of understanding God's will, understanding who God is. Uh, he, He was more mature. And often our understanding of worship, does it not come from loss?
1: It does. That many times I think we can assume, okay, I've got it all together. And then God brings us through these valleys that reveal the things our hearts still clinging to, and disentangling our hearts from those idols is painful and it's hard, but it's good, and that's where I think we have to really rest in God and His character, even when it's hard, because then through that we do grow in maturity, we grow in our understanding of His sufficiency and our dependence on His grace, that may make us realize we don't have it all together but that's exactly where God wants us to be. Well,
0: when our pastoral search team and our elders first got to know you, it's been about six months or so mm-hmm. since I first met you. Mm-hmm. But uh, you shared about having a child with Down syndrome and how that has changed your life. And in the context of our discussion of worshiping God, what has fifth child Judas presence in the Cockrell family taught you about worshiping your Creator?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. It actually connects to what we were just talking about, because... You know, as a pastor, as a person who's been a Christian for a long time, it's very easy to say, I trust in God. I trust his goodness. I trust his character, all of those things. But I can remember uh, Katie was 10 weeks pregnant. We went in for the ultrasound and the ultrasound tech was was doing the scan and all of a sudden she just stopped and she shut off the machine and she said, well, we're not going to continue the the ultrasound because there's something wrong with your baby that was all she said. She said you're going to need to meet with the doctor. Well, there's
0: a great bedside. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, I can remember, you know, sitting there in that room just kind of feeling this sense of of whiplash from expecting to be able to see this fifth child that that God had blessed us with and realizing this was not going to go according to what we had expected and had planned. And that began a journey for us over the next number of months as we wondered what chromosomal condition he had, whether was he was going to even be viable, because there's a number of, of things that can mean the child doesn't even really survive past birth. Then realizing he had Down syndrome and wondering what that was going to look like for our family, wondering whether he was going to have some of the more severe effects that Down syndrome can have. And and with each time we went to a different doctor's appointment, it just drove us to greater dependence on God. because. Because I tend to be a fixer. I tend to be somebody that wants to be a problem solver and to look at all the information and say, okay, how do we fix this? And God was clearly putting me and us in a situation where he's like, you're not going to be able to fix this. You're not going to be able to solve this. And in the process, it reminded me just of God's goodness. And when Judah was born and he ended up staying in the hospital for a little while um, in, in the NICU, just daily recognizing the good gift that God had given us and our constant dependence on him. It wasn't just like, oh, look, now the story has a happy ending, but but rather day after day, delighting in this gift and understanding that as he was dependent on us, God was calling us to that same type of dependence on him. And by God's grace, he's been very healthy. He's been just such a, a joy to our family. But one of the things that he's taught me most probably is I've always been somebody who wants to, to do things quickly, you know, to to accomplish tasks. And Judah does everything slowly. He does everything, takes him longer to do everything, even as a five-year-old now. But as I've interacted with him, I've realized that as I see that, I, I'm not generally impatient with him, but rather I see how hard he's working and how he's grown and developed. And it reminds me sometimes there's there's great wisdom and blessing in slowing down and that God isn't impressed by our efficiency as much as he is by our dependence. And that's been such a, a humbling thing for me, but also such a, a life-giving thing because it transforms faith into to a dependent relationship and not just a series of things that we know or things that we do. And so Judah's just such a joy to our family. You know, yesterday was a World Down Syndrome Day on uh, March 21st. And I did
0: not know that when I was uh, thinking go. through these questions and comments.
1: But it, it leads us to reflect every year on just what a, a gift he is, what a glue he's been for our family, and uh, we're just so thankful for God's goodness. But going back to your point about worship, I think it helps us to honor God by worshiping, worshiping him as God to say, God, I trust you, even when circumstances are happening that I don't fully understand and I can't fix, so to speak.
0: And Tim, from a distance, as I have watched your family uh, here for the past few months, it, it seems that there's a certain spontaneity in Judah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: he doesn't necessarily think through things like I might. Okay, how mm-hmm. should I do this uh, it, during a church service? Should I raise my hand? <laughs> should I put my own palms out? Or whatever it might be. But Judah just seems to respond in the moment and with great joy,
1: typically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's such a sincerity and a purity to the love that he has that really is genuinely unconditional. We've had times where we'll be in a restaurant or something, and he'll go walking up to a table that if we were to pick out a table of people we wanted to That's interact not with... That's the one. That <laughs> would be the, the one that we would least choose. But it's also amazing to see the way that breaks down barriers, even in the people that he goes up to, to where we're not sure what's going to happen. And, and their faces just light up because... He's just extending unconditional love to everyone he meets. And man, it's such a convicting reminder. That's what God calls us to do as well.
0: Yeah, and he's calling you to walk through some of those doors, I'm sure, too.
1: Yep, exactly. That's
0: great. Well, Tim, thanks for joining. Thanks for sharing from your heart. We really appreciate it. Of course. Well, Tim Cockrell has been my guest on this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16, and you can access that message as well as other Grace Baptist Church sermons and podcast episodes on your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecederville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecederville.org. That's contact at gracecederville.org. Plan to join us next week as we'll continue our discussion of God's Word in Matthew chapter 26. Until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecederville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.